If you'll take your Bibles, please, and open to 2 Samuel chapter 8 as we continue our series in the life of David entitled A Man After God's Own Heart. So let me give you some more of the context as you get to 2 Samuel 8, okay? So find that in your Old Testament. Um, we've just finished the last three weeks in 2 Samuel 7, which I've argued is one of the most important scriptures in your Old Testament. It's important because it bridges the covenant promises made to Abraham to David. And of course, all of those promises are, going, are pointing to Christ. So in chapter 7, God makes a covenant of grace with David, though David didn't ask for it. And God reveals to David and to us what he intends to do for his people Israel through David's line and dynasty. After all, the Christ is going to come from this line. And so God's promises in 2 Samuel 7 are not simply about David. David's not the hero. It's not simply about David and his house. This is about God's eternal purposes for his own glory and the good of his people. God will bless his people and keep his promises and all of that, again, ultimately points to the heir of David, Jesus Christ, who will one day come and receive this kingdom promised to David. And he will not just bless Israel, but the nations, as all the nations are invited to become God's people by faith. So the Christ, Jesus, the son of David, will one day come and rule over God's people forever, and bring with him, hear me, the righteousness and justice and peace that all of us long for. And so, in 2 Samuel 8, we get a glimpse here in David's kingdom, though it's partial and imperfect, David's not perfect, his kingdom is not perfect, we get a glimpse, a pattern of what Jesus' future kingdom will be like. Now, as I said earlier, David's kingdom is the first time in human history that we have God's king, David, over God's people, Israel, in God's place, the promised land, under God's rule and blessing. It's like they're going back to the Garden of Eden, where we're God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing. So again, this is an imperfect pattern of what God's kingdom under Christ will be like. And that's my title this morning. The pattern of the kingdom. All right, so as we begin, and I read the text, you need to note that chapter 8 is not necessarily chronological. It's thematically tied to chapter 7 as the author wants you to connect the promises that God made in chapter 7 as, to coming, as those promises come to fruition across David's uh, uh, rule. Okay, so that all happened at once. It happens across David's rule, so it's thematically tied, not chronological. So we're going to walk through the text and make some observations as we connect this to other Old Testament promises. So let's read the text. This reads like a history because it is, but we're going to see God's hand behind this. Okay. So, and by the way, this is a rough text. Like this is like rated R Bible. Okay. But it's God's word and God's promises. So let's listen to what happens in second Samuel eight. It says, after this, this is after God's covenant that he makes to him. It says, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amma out of the hands of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab 
And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line he spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. And David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Then when Toy, king of Hamath, heard what, that David had defeated the whole army, army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to his people. Joab the son of Zeruiah was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sarai was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I break this into two sections. I'm going to try to work quickly. You'll have to listen fast. The first section deals with conquest and rest. The whole first half of this text deals with David's conquests and rest being given to the people of Israel. Now, there are four battles and four victories for David and Israel. And geographically, if you are looking at a map of Israel, these battles are arranged from the southwest along the Mediterranean, up around the southeast, up to the north, all the way to the river Euphrates. So this is making a half moon all the way around Israel from the southwest, from the south, from the southwest to the southeast, north and around Israel. Okay, so David is bordering all of Israel as he goes. Okay, so the Philistines were in the southwest between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. Moab and Edom were to the southeast. Aram and Damascus were to the north and Syria. Zobah and Hamath were near the Euphrates River to the far north. So what David is doing is securing the borders of Israel as promised by God going all the way back to Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. You have to know that God had promised in the Bible this land to Abraham. And after the exodus, Moses led the people to the promised land and left Joshua 
to conquer the land which included all of these inhabitants that are listed here in the text. So David is doing what Joshua was not able to finish and particularly what Saul was supposed to do as Israel's king. In fact, Saul was made king for the very purpose of fighting Israel's battles and bringing rest to the land. And we know Saul failed tremendously. So God, through David, is doing exactly what he promised in chapter 7. Look back up in chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. So just look across your page. Chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Look what God says to David. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give rest to you from all your enemies. That's what's happening in chapter 8. So David begins his conquest. Let's walk through these four victories. He begins his conquest with the Philistines. We all learn about this from the time we are in um, preschool and children's. According to Genesis, the Philistines were the descendants of Ham. And they were the most persistent enemies of Israel going all the way back to the time of the judges. And in David's day, they had much power. In fact, Goliath, a Philistine, taunted Israel before Saul and caused all of the people to melt in fear. And it was David who won victory and fame by defeating this giant with a shepherd's sling in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David also, though, during his time of running from Saul, he had to hide among the Philistines. And so the Philistines offered David some manner of protection. And it was ultimately the Philistines who killed Saul and Jonathan, thus leading to David being king of Israel as he had promised. And our text just simply says, David struck them down and subdued them and took from them Metheg Amah. Now you're like, I don't know what that is. That's the capital city of Gath. That's told us in Second. That's told that, that this story is repeated over in Second, over in another part of Second Kings, and that name Metheg Amoth means bridle of the mother city. So this is the power. This is the power location of the Philistines, and David takes it from them. So again, David does what Joshua and Saul are unable to do. Israel had won some battles in their history, but they had never subdued them. And next, David strikes down Moab. Now, the story of Moab goes back to the very rated R story in Genesis involving Abraham's nephew Lot and his two daughters. Okay? So you can go back and read that story on your own. But Mo the Moabites were kinsmen of Israel. They were related. But something happened during the Exodus. During the Exodus, as the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt... Um, the Moabites become hostile to the Israelites on their way to the promised land. Moses had sent them a letter and said, hey, can we just pass through your land on our way to the promised land that the Lord our God is giving us? And the Moabites refused. In fact, they refused. They, didn't, they in fact hired a prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites so that the Israelites would be defeated before them. So the Moabites didn't simply refuse to let Israel pass. They actively sought Israel's destruction. So Balaam, instead of cursing them, made this prophecy. Listen to this in Numbers 24. A star shall come out of Jacob 
and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Well, who is that scepter? Who is that star? David. David is doing exactly what Balaam sees happening back in Numbers 24. So David executes God's judgment on Moab. We are told that he measures them with a line. He captures all of these men, measures them with a line. Two lines are, uh, two lines are executed and one line is spared. Now that is a graphic scene if you think about it. And that can upset some of our sensibilities. So what do you make of it when the Bible just simply says, David measured this army with a line, two of them he just put to death. Boom. Just flat out. Well, what do we do with that? Well, let me give you a couple of things, just a couple of reminders of how we read our Bible. First, it is right for us to flinch and recoil at war, at violence, and at death. If you didn't, you're very messed up. Okay? That's part of us being made in the image of God with a conscience. Nobody wants war, violence, and death. That is horrible. Our intuitions tell us that those things should not be a part of this world. That's an echo of Eden in us, that we know this is not how God made the world. And we know, because of this, that this world isn't perfect. And God tells us that He Himself takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So even God doesn't long for death or enjoy it. He's not a masochist. Two, this also shows us that the Bible is honest about what happens. The Bible isn't sugarcoating things. It's, it's very honest. It doesn't shy away from telling you the truth, even if it shocks you. David put two lines to the sword. Okay? It doesn't sugarcoat hard things. Three, because of that, because we know those truths, all of that is true, you should read your Bible with a lot of humility. What I mean by that is you should come to the Bible to learn, not to impose our own limited and, more, and, our limited and broken moralities upon it. Okay, you'd go, David, David should never do that. Okay, that's fine. Be careful that you do not sit on a moral high horse to condemn what you read. We know that David isn't a perfect king. And we know that he can and does make mistakes because the Bible is going to tell us he does. But at the same time, this particular action is, is set in the context of God's judgment. God uses David to perform his justice. And God can use and does use whomever he chooses for his own purposes, and in the end, he will sort it out. God will sort it out in the end. Now, let me point you, this is why I know that's true. Turn over to Isaiah 10. You need to read this. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 10, so I can show you a biblical example of God using someone for his own purposes to judge others, and then God will judge them. Okay? God's going to use somebody to judge his people Israel, and then God says, I'm going to judge them. Because they don't, they're not doing it with the same purpose that I intend. All right? Isaiah 10, if you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say hold on. All right, Isaiah 10. Okay? Put your Bible brain thinking caps on. Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 5. Look at what God says. Pay attention. Woe to Assyria. Okay, that's a big imperial powerhouse. Woe to Assyria. So there, something bad's about to happen to them. 
the rod of my anger. That's who, is, that's who Assyria is. They're the rod of God's anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. So Assyria is executing God's judgment. It says, against a godless nation, I send him. I'm sending Assyria. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. So who's in charge of Assyria and what they're doing? God is. Okay? Look what he says. To take spoil and seize plunder and to tread, down, tread them down like the mire of the streets. But listen to this. But Assyria does not so intend. Assyria does not know or think they're doing what God wants. They're doing it for their own purposes. He says, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy. So are God's intentions and Assyria's intentions the same? No. God's intentions are to execute justice and, and, his, and his righteous judgment. Their intentions are to destroy and to cut off nations. And this is what Assyria says. Look at their boast. Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? And Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria? And shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Huh. Going to judge Israel and Samaria because they're godless. And look at this. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem... God will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God says, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem to judge my people, and then I'm going to bring it to you because your intentions are not mine. And look what he says. Look what he says. Look at the speech of the king in verse 13, the king of Assyria. By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I will remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder, plunder their treasures, and like a bull bring down those who sit on thrones. And listen, look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who swings it? Who's swinging Assyria? God is. They're just an axe. And then look at the next one. Or shall the saw magnify itself against the one who wields it? Huh. So here's what's happening in 2 Samuel 8. John Calvin captures the main thrust of this section well. He says this. He says, The stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be the just judgment of God, since they had abused, long abused his patience and mocked him. That's what happens to the Moabites, God's judgment. And then next we're told that David defeated, defeated Zoba in the north, and then he defeats... Um, he, puts, he hamstrings their horses, and he only keeps enough horses for 100 chariots to obey what's most likely written in Deuteronomy, strikes down 22,000 of the Syrians of Damascus, places garrisons there for peace and security, and from them come spoils of gold and other materials that will be used for furnishing the temple. And then the final victory is listed in verse 13, where he defeats Edom in the Valley of Salt, which is most likely in the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. So four battles, four victories, what is the point? What is the point? Well, let me give you four observations so you can understand all of this biblically. What, is, what does this mean? Four things. Number one, what is happening here is the Lord's doing. Look at verses 5 and 14. Very plainly, the text says in verses 5 and 14, at the end of these episodes, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It's the Lord's doing. 
This is the Lord working through David's rule to bring peace and security and rest to Israel. This is the same language used when Joshua, when Joshua brings Israel into the land. So the emphasis in this text is on the Lord keeping his promises to his people David. The emphasis is not on David's military prowess or, his, or some imperialistic expansion or greed. It's the Lord's doing. Second, God set the boundaries of national Israel. What's happening here is according to the word of the Lord. God had told them very specifically what Israel could and could not have. And in all of the world, this is a very small piece of property. I've been there. It's not, it's not much bigger than Carroll County. This is, a, this is a very small chunk of land. So God has told them what they could and could not have. And that is a huge difference for Israel. So for those who want to sit in judgment on this, I will remind you that Israel is far different from the surrounding nations of this day like Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Babylon, and Rome who sought to conquer the entire world. And Israel says, this is only what God has given us. This is it. Okay, so they sought to conquer the whole world and if if possible, subjugate all people. Israel was not to be like them in their imperialism. Number three, and this is also very important going back to the time of the conquest. Israel was not to destroy any people who willingly joined them. They were not allowed to destroy any people who willingly joined them. Think here of Rahab and Jericho, who confessed openly that we know what you did to the other kings of the land and to Egypt, and we know that the Lord has given you this land, and our hearts melt before you in fear. And and Rahab was spared. Or Ruth, the Moabitess, David's own grandmother, also came and willingly joined the people of Israel. And in verse 18 of our text, notice it says there that the Carathites and the Palathites, they are fighters for David from the Negev. They willingly joined David to fight with him and not against him. So, that's what happens. So what this means is conquest precedes rest when God's enemies do not repent. That's a very important thing for us to remember. Conquest precedes rest when God's enemies do not repent. And we know, by the way, God's enemies will resist. And they will invite God's judgment. But when they come to God's king and make peace, he receives them. Now look back at verses 9 and 10. Look back at verses 9 and 10. We have this one little guy in here named Toy. So let's not toy with Toy. A little preacher joke. Toy has no love lost for the king of Zobah. And when he finds out that his, that his common enemy with David has been destroyed, he sends his son to make a treaty of peace with David and send tribute. He's not struck down. David doesn't march to Toy's kingdom and put him to the sword. They make peace. And this is a model of how we should respond to God's king. This foreshadows the day in Revelation when it says all nations will willingly and joyfully bring their tribute to King Jesus. So there's this grace in the middle of this. And lest you missed it earlier, David also spares one-third of the Moabites. We might be angry that he strikes down two-thirds, but can you fault him for being gracious to at least saving the one-third that didn't deserve it? What are you to make of that? Okay? So... 
In 2 Samuel 8, God, uh, 2 Samuel 8 shows God giving Israel the peace and rest that he had promised. And that peace and rest had to come through conquest. Now, so that's the first thing, conquest and rest. Secondly, notice the rule of righteousness as I try to wrap this up. The rule of righteousness. Look at verses 14 through 18, uh, 15 through 18 where it basically shows you David's administration. It shows you how David ruled over his people. Look what it says. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Verse 15 here is the summary of what David's kingdom looked like for the average, everyday Israelite. Two things. Number one, David ruled, notice what the text says, over all Israel. All of it. He removed those who threatened the peace and security of God's people. And he made peace with those who did not threaten that peace and security. He ruled over all Israel. Saul can never say that. And by the way, almost no king after Solomon can say that either. He ruled over all of Israel to its intended borders as God had prescribed. And second, notice that it says David administered justice and equity to all his people. That is the goal of God's king for the good of his people. This is a shepherd king who was given for the good of his people. And this is, by the way, not, is this not what we all intuitively long for in our own government? Do we not want them to administer justice and equity to all the people? So this is a picture of what the future coming reign and rule of Jesus will look like. Jesus will conquer and bring rest. Jesus will execute justice and righteousness. And it will be done only, only, hear me, only by Jesus. Not by Christian nationalists or any other group. It will only be done by Jesus. Do you understand? That is a day in the future that is coming that only Jesus can bring. It will be just and right because only He can do it without any injustice or unrighteousness. So if we have a problem, let me be honest, if we have a problem with, God, with David executing God's justice for His people, then you must also have a problem with Jesus doing it when He comes Himself riding a white horse and treading out the winepress of God's wrath until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Because Jesus is coming conquering. Okay? Not us. Jesus is coming to execute justice. He will do it. Not us. Right now, we humbly submit to Jesus. We live peaceful and quiet lives. We submit to God's appointed temporary governments. We turn the other cheek. We do not avenge ourselves. We do not return evil for evil. We endure patiently suffering and persecution as the Lord assigns it to us. And we know that one day Jesus will make every wrong right. Now here it is. I'm going to wrap up right here. Is everybody listening? If you are, say amen. Okay. The good news of the gospel... The good news of the gospel is that all those who do not resist King Jesus and all those who humbly bow their knee to him now 
those who lay down their arms and their rebellion and their sin and embrace Him as Lord have nothing to fear of His kingdom and nothing to fear of His wrath on that day. They will be welcome as sons and daughters by faith. They will live under His righteous rule forever, enjoying and delighting in Him. And we receive Him now by repentance and faith. As promised in Romans 1. Listen to what Romans 1 says. Romans 5, sorry, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Peace. Not enmity, not war, not rebellion, not insurrection. Peace. And then Romans 5, 8 says... But God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, while we were still insurrectionists, Christ died for us. And therefore, we have now been justified by His blood and we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Because it is coming. It's coming one day. Jesus will come and conquer and throw out of His kingdom every cause of sin and unrighteousness. So right now, the hope of the gospel is extended to all that you can have peace with God and salvation and forgiveness and eternal life and not worry about God's coming judgment because right now you can have peace with God as we wait on that day. So the invitation is very simple this morning. Are you ready to meet with Jesus? Are you ready on that day to stand before Him? Because on that day... Every sin will be laid bare. Every intent and thought of our hearts will be plain. And there will be no running. There will be no escaping. And there will be no resistance. As Philippians says very plainly, every day, oh, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And for those of us that love that day and long for that day, there will be nothing but joy. As we, receive, as we receive the kingdom that Jesus has promised us. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, we invite you to come to him. This morning, if you don't have a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. This morning, if you just need to pray and repent, you need to come here. If there's people in your family you need to pray for, and you need to be willing to share the gospel hope with, you come this morning, however the Lord leads you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be glorified, and your name will be lifted high. We pray that we would come to Jesus willingly, lovingly, humbly, repentantly. Father, because He is the only hope we have. Father, Your Word is filled with warnings that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and He will bring with Him. He'll bring with Him all of what we've ever longed for and hoped for, but it will also be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Father, may we be ready for that day. And Lord, may no one come to that day without having heard the Gospel from us. Father, if people must go to hell, may they do it leaping and bounding over our dead bodies as we implore them and plead with them not, not to, to forsake their soul on that day. So, Father, bless your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.